Amen. So we're talking about living in a messed up land. Here's a question for you. What do Prince William, Leonardo da Vinci, Oprah Winfrey, and Paul McCartney have in common? Money. Money. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think da Vinci had to let go of his, but anyway. Prince William, Leonardo da Vinci. The clue is in Paul McCartney. Of course, if you're a teenager, you say, Paul who? And I'm sorry for you. But, uh, but, but here's the deal. They were all left-handed. There you go. You came to church and learned something. Useless information, but you learned it, right? How many of you are left-handed? This message is for you today. Okay. I don't want you to feel, I know you're left out a lot of times and feel as if you're different. No, you're special, and today's message is especially for you. You'll find out why as we look at the book of Judges and chapter 3. Judges 3 and verse 12 says this, but the people of Israel went back to doing evil in God's sight. Sorry, let me give the backdrop because I appreciate not everyone's been here the last several weeks while we've done this. Starting at kind of the beginning of the Old Testament in the Bible, you've got a number of characters and different people introduced, and then you've got the nation of Israel developing, and then it comes to a point where they are all, they end up as slaves in the land of Egypt, okay? Then you've got the story of them being freed from slavery, the Exodus, okay? They come out of Egypt, Red Sea, Charlton Heston. Yeah. Yeah, you young people still don't know what I'm talking about, right? So, so, right, they come out of there. They travel for a number of years. They come to a land God said that he would give them, and they, they enter into that land. And we've got them now. The book of Judges is part of the history of when they settled in this land of their own. And part of their history was a history of doing the wrong thing. In fact, someone said to me today, this morning before service, said, uh, you, need, you need to suggest another Bible book to read because you suggested Judges, and I read right through it. I can't believe how many times they messed up. <laughs> Welcome to human nature. Right? But they did. over. So here we are, Judges chapter 3. It's happening again. But the people of Israel went back to doing evil in God's sight. So... God made Eglon, the king of Moab, a power against Israel because they did evil in God's sight. He recruited the Ammonites and Amalekites. They went out and struck Israel. They took the city of Palms. The people of, the people of Israel were in servitude to Eglon 14 years. So they, they started to do things that were wrong. God said, okay, you want to go your way? I'll kind of withdraw from things. And then Eglon, the king of Moab, starts to oppress them. He recruits another couple of nations to oppress them. And then they're in this situation now where they're virtually living as slaves to Eglon because they're working and he's taking their money. And then it also says in that passage that I read, it, said, it says that these, these foreign nations took the city of Palms, which is kind of significant. When the children of Israel went into the promised land, the first big victory was that they conquered the city of Jericho. Right? That was the first thing. Right? Joshua did battle Jericho. 
Yep, still lost the teenagers. All right, so, so that was, right? So, so the city of Jericho, they, uh, you know, they, the, the, the uh, children of Israel came. God told them not to fight against it, walk around it. And uh, when they walked around the city walls on the last day, they walked around seven times. They all shouted, and the walls fell down. Skeptics kind of look at that and say, yeah, right, nice story. Architects, sorry, archaeologists tell us that actually the remains of Jericho have been found sunk into the ground. Except, get this one, get this one. Except there's one corner building that didn't sink into the ground. I haven't got time to go there now. Some of you old timers will remember the story about Rahab the woman who looked after the spies who came to check things out. And Rahab said, since I've helped you, will you keep my family safe? And they said, you and your household will be safe. This is real stuff that actually happened like. These aren't, these aren't picture stories in kids' books. They're, they're way more than that. So, so Jericho's defeat was absolutely huge. But here are the same people a few years later, and, and King Eglon really oppresses them. He takes the city of Jericho, and it's like we're back to square one. We're slaves virtually again, and we've lost the, 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 the jewel of the city of Jericho. Way back to where they started. But here's what it says in Judges 3 and verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Do you ever get to the point with some people where you think, I'm done with you? Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you need to be done with people. But like, I think sometimes, particularly when I'm reading there in the book of Judges, if I was God, I'd say, you know, forget it. Forget it. Over and over again, they fell into the same trap. God helped them, God delivered them, God blessed them, and you know what? Give them a little bit of time and they start doing evil again, and they start worshiping idols again, and it's like, what the heck? But the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Here, here's, here's just a statement that there might be somebody here today that needs to hear. God never writes us off. I'll say that again because you didn't believe it the first time. God never writes us off. Right? There, there might be somebody to hear today that that really means something too, uh, right here and now. And, and I just want to remind you of that. God never writes us off. God never writes us off as individuals. Here they were living in a messed up land, but God didn't write them off. Here are you and I living in a messed up land. But God hasn't written us off either. God hasn't written us off. Be careful not to feed into the negativity. You know, I must have conducted hundreds of weddings over the years, and uh, I'll tell you this. Every bride has been beautiful. Now, we're all different. I, I, I could really dig a big hole for myself here, but <laughs> I'm trying not to. But, but, but you know, I've, I've seen some ladies who, who were... Oh, <laughs> this isn't going to end well, right? 
Now, let's say they, they, were, they were kind of average lookers. Is that all right? I'm not saying any of the brides I ever married, all right? I'm not talking about any wedding I ever conducted, especially if you're sitting here this morning, right? Okay? <laughs> but on their wedding day, they were absolutely stunning. Because on the wedding day, they're wearing a dress that costs more than my whole Converse collection. <laughs> right? On their wedding day, they're probably, they're probably wearing the most expensive hairdo they've ever had in their lives. On their wedding day, they've had like Hollywood proportion makeup artists. And when I stand at the front with a groom right beside me and the door's open and the bride's there, it's like, wow. And often I'll say to the groom, you did good. The Bible says Jesus will come back again one day, and it says he will come for a glorious bride. So, however challenging things might be in the world just now, I don't want you to get idea that for the church, life's going down and down and down and down. Jesus will not come for a washed-up old hag. He will come for a glorious bride. That's the reality. That's the reality. And I know the Bible gives us some warning of some very trying things that will happen uh, towards the end of time in the last days. But, but never forget the fact, it also says this in Joel chapter 2. God says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God's still got some things that he's going to do. And I want to tell you this. While we might be living in a messed up land, the story isn't over yet. Because God still has some things up his sleeve. Israel was in a devastating position. They were back to where they started and then some. So God used Ehud. Now, some of you, that's probably the first time you've ever heard that guy's name. And that's fine. He's just tucked away here in Judges chapter 3. And that's him. He uses a guy called Ehud. And Ehud was an absolutely unremarkable man. He was an unremarkable man who did remarkable things. He was like the James Bond of the book of Judges. He really was. And Bond isn't dead, by the way. Anyway, he was, he was, he was, he was. This story is incredible. Honestly, there's some fantastic stuff in the Bible, but just make sure you read it in a translation that you can understand and get the good of what's going on. But, but I want you to notice here a couple of things about Ehud. And I want to emphasize this point. Ehud was ordinary. And God uses ordinary people. How many of you would say, I'm pretty ordinary? I know some of you don't. Some of you think you're magnificent. But, right? It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty ordinary. I'm pretty ordinary. And, and you know what? That's cool because God uses ordinary people. All right? Judges chapter 3, verse 15 there. The people of Israel cried out to God, and God raised up for them a Savior, Ehud, son of Gerah, a Benjamite. Here you go, folks. He was left-handed. Now, 
What's significant about that description of Ehud is twofold. Number one, he was a Benjamite. That means he was from the smallest and most insignificant tribe of Israel. So he, he, he didn't have any special pedigree. The second thing is, in that day, being left-handed was almost considered a disability. It was looked down on. So here's Ehud, he's from a nobody tribe, and He's looked upon as being someone who's got a disability and is not valued as much in those days as the rest of society was. You know what, if you, if you think through some of the Bible stories you might know best, God used ordinary people. I referred to Moses and the Exodus, but the truth is, before God called him to deliver Israel, Moses lived as a fugitive for 40 years looking after sheep in the back end of beyond. He was nobody. Or, or let's take the story of David and Goliath. David, before that event, was a teenage boy who looked after sheep. Or let's look at Jesus. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, prophesying the coming of Christ. The servant, that's Jesus, grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. You know, Isaiah said there, Jesus is going to come and he's going to look pretty ordinary. And for 30 years, he did just that. Now, I know, I know, you know, I know in all the pictures, and, and you know, you've seen pictures of Jesus, so you know what he looked like, but, but, but I know in all the pictures, he's got this long blonde hair and his blue eyes and looks Mr. Perfection, but uh, he was Jewish. You don't see many Jewish people with blonde hair and blue eyes. That probably wasn't what Jesus looked like in the slightest. In fact, what Isaiah said is there's nothing about how he looked that would make anybody take notice of him until God started to use him. God uses ordinary people. God isn't looking for people who are spectacular and have the skills to do amazing things. He's looking for people who are ordinary enough to rely on him and allow him to do what only he can do. Turning around the nation began with a reject, Ehud. He was an ordinary person. And then the second thing I want to say about Ehud is this. He was not only ordinary, he was underrated by their enemies. He was underrated. Now, what is really the, the you know, what is what happened to Israel centuries ago really have to do with us? Well, what's, what's written in the Scripture is here so that we can learn how God works and how God is from reading it. Because the fact is, the people of Israel at this time were oppressed by three nations. They were living as if they were slaves. And, and here's what it says in the New Testament to you and me, and is a good reminder for us. We're in a battle as well. 
There's a spiritual battle that is constantly being waged in the world around us. That's why in Ephesians 6 it says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Here's the bit. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know where the real battle is that happens in this world? You know where the real battle is for our nation? You know where the real battle is for your home and for your family? It isn't with the individuals and with their problems and with their, 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 their weirdness. And uh, here's where the real problem is. The real problem is we are wrestling against dark spiritual forces. There are spiritual forces that are out to destroy us and destroy our lives. They won't win because Jesus is protecting us. Amen. But they'll do their darndest to play havoc with us. There are spiritual forces that are trying to devastate homes and families. There are spiritual forces that are trying to break apart the nation in which we live. I'm not talking politics and politicians. I don't get into that stuff on a Sunday morning. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm saying, let's see the bigger picture. I've lived here long enough to see a Democratic Congress and a Republican Congress, and a Democratic Congress and a Republican Congress, and a Democratic Congress, and nobody made anything any better because they don't have the answer, folks. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. We wrestle, we wrestle against spiritual forces, and that's where the battle is, and that's why you and I, who are people of faith, that is why you and I are so important in this situation. God took Ehud, who was nobody, who was underrated, who wasn't seen as a threat, and he became a key part of turning things around in the nation. Listen, the government can't do it. Joe Biden can't do it. Upset some of you now, Donald Trump can't do it, but here's the reality Jesus can do it. Yeah. Jesus can do it. And all of my Facebook rants or Twitter rants will not make that happen. But I tell you, what will turn the world around is the love of God will turn the world around. I've totally off track now, so I'll just keep going. Here's, here's, the, <laughs> here's the thing in Jesus' day, there were some grave social ills. So slavery was a thing in Jesus' day. Women's rights? Women had no rights in Jesus' day. But Jesus never got onto social issues even. You know what Jesus got onto? Loving people that were lost. Turning lives around. And he has made an impact that continues 2,000 years later. Don't get sidetracked from what only you can bring to the table. And if you know and love the Lord, 
what you can bring to the table is life-changing. And what is life-changing is the love of God. Ehud was not looked upon as a threat. Here, here, here's how that story developed. So he, um, he was sent with a couple of other people to bring the tribute money, they called it, the taxes, the, the money that King Eglon was taking off them on a regular basis. So he took that to King Eglon. He took it in and they gave it to the king and, and they left. And when they left and gone a certain distance and all his party were safe, Ehud turned around and went back and said, I'd like to speak to the king. I've got a message from God for him. So when the people in, 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 who, who were there with the king so it was Ehud, they thought, oh yeah, that's fine, he's safe. Because they looked upon him as being a disabled man who was no threat. And then they could have looked, you know what? If he'd had any kind of sword, he'd have been wearing it here because that's how he'd have drawn it. So they looked here and there's nothing there, he's good. And he goes into the king. And as he leans in to talk to the king and whisper in his ear, he takes a short double-edged dagger from his other side with his left hand and he drives it low into the king's stomach. Okay, now here's a bit you probably don't want to know, but it says it in the Bible. It says he was a very large man. Actually, the Bible uses the F word. It says he was a fat man, but they, he, he plunged it into his stomach and it says he was so fat that the fat kind of got around the hilt of the knife and he couldn't take it out again. He lost it. It was stuck in there. This is a great book. You ought to read it, really. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fabulous book. Yeah, he lost, his, he lost his knife. And then, and then here's what he did. Here's what he had did. He, he went and locked the doors from the inside and escaped over the patio and, and nobody knew he had gone and as time went by, some of the people are thinking, is everything all right in there? The king's been in there forever. But they wouldn't dare go in because you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't interrupt the king. And so they waited. They waited long enough till Ehud was out of there and absolutely safe. And then they discovered it. And then there was chaos. But by then, Ehud had summoned the armies of Israel and said, this is a great time for us to attack the Moabites. And they attacked the Moabites, and they drove them out of all of their territory, and Israel had peace for 80 years. Ehud. <laughs> Nobody would have thought twice about him but he was the man God used. You know, the church is the most underrated force on earth. I really believe that. We have the answers to what people are looking for. Here's what it says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So talking about these, these spiritual forces, it said God's given us the weapons that will demolish them. 
So what are they? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to outline three, right? Number one, pray. Pray. What's going to turn our next year? Pray. Roger, you've got to give me something more. No, let's go straight to the top. Let's start there. Pray. Pray. Continue to pray. Here's what it says in Ephesians 6. It says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. I want to encourage you today, pray for our nation and always keep on praying. Always keep on praying. When you hear some news item that distresses you, pray. Don't get riled up and angry. Pray, pray, pray. Doesn't have to, I'm not, I didn't say go, go into some place all by yourself and spend the next hour there. Right where you are, there and then, pray, pray. As thoughts come into your mind while you're driving along, pray, pray. The power of prayer is absolutely incredible. And then the second thing I want to say that we need to do ourselves, because these are the weapons God has given us, is we love. John 13 verse 1 says this about Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love people. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And he has turned millions and millions and millions and millions of people's lives upside down. Love people. And then speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Don't attend every argument you're invited to. Just speak the truth in love. I, I, I like what it says in James 1.19 where it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Speak the truth in love. Years ago, long before even I was born, there was a prominent uh, anthropologist and agnostic in England called Thomas Huxley. So an agnostic is not like an atheist who says there is no God. An agnostic says, well, there might be a God, but I haven't seen the evidence to convince me. So once, Thomas Huxley was once away at a house party with a bunch of friends for a weekend, and on Sunday morning, the, the whole group uh, were getting ready to go to church, and Huxley was not going. And, and then he, he said to one of the group who was getting ready for church, he said, suppose you don't go to church, but stay back and tell me why you believe in Jesus. And the guy said to him, but you are so smart. You're incredibly more intelligent than I am, and you'd demolish anything I would say. And Huxley's reply was this, I don't want to argue. I want you to tell me what this means to you. The two guys sat down together, and the Christian started to explain just the difference that Jesus had made in his life. And when he finished, Thomas Huxley was in tears. He didn't get converted that day, but here's what he said. He said, I would give my right hand 
if only I could believe that. You don't need to argue about faith. You don't need to be preaching what you believe necessarily. Share what Jesus means to you. Look for opportunities to tell others what Christ has done for you. I remember years ago hearing my pastor when I was a teenager say this. He said, the person who has an experience is never at the mercy of someone who only has an argument. If you've got an experience of God, <laughs> you've got the upper hand over anybody who wants to argue because here's the bottom line. I don't care what you say, pal. I know what I know. And we need to speak God's truth in love. The world may underrate us, but don't ever minimize the difference one person can make. And I've got to tell you this, and I know our time's nearly gone, but here we go. I've got to, I've got to say this about Ehud as well. Ehud was a man of destiny. You know, you know one of the things I love about this story? His being left-handed was considered a disability. But God took what looked like a disability, and God used that for His purposes. I love that. I love that. It looked like, you know, a left-handed guy. Well, what's he going to do? You know, but it was a left-handed man that God wanted at that purpose. I was thinking along this line, and I was, I, I was doing a, a, a little bit of research, and I was, I, I love to see the transformation that AA has made in millions and millions of people's lives over the years. Uh, and I've been happy that we've been able to host AA groups here for a number of years now. And, and I was looking, and I didn't know this, that AA began in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. I didn't know that. Some of you perhaps do. And it was the outcome of a meeting between two guys, Bill W., a New York stockbroker, and Dr. Bob S., an Akron surgeon. Both of them had been hopeless alcoholics. And what could have destroyed them with God's help, they turned around and developed a program that has been the salvation of millions of people and millions of lives since. God takes the disability and He uses it to be a blessing to many, many more people. And, and, and you know what? That's what God does for you and I as well. That's what God does with individuals. You might look at yourself today and say, well, you know, Rog, you don't know where I've been. I don't know where you've been, but I know this. I know this. God never gives up on anybody, and God can use some of your history to help to make you a blessing to people that I would never even be able to communicate with. That's the reality. No experience is wasted in God. And even your background before you knew God, none of that is wasted because God will draw things from that which will equip you and enable you to bring freedom and deliverance to other people as you continue to follow the Lord. I love that. It's, 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 it's part of the miracle. Jesus said to Peter once, he said, Simon, Satan's desire to have you. Luke chapter 22. 
uh, and, and verse 31. He said, Simon, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He said, Satan wants to give you a hard time, and uh, I'm going to let him. Thanks. <laughs> but, 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 here's the thing. But when you've returned, when you've been through that, listen, sometimes God won't remove the trial. He'll let you go through the trial, but he'll be with you in the trial, and he'll bring you out the other side. Isn't that the truth? And Jesus said, so here's what I want you to do. When you've returned, strengthen your brethren. You'll be in a better position when you've been through that to be a strength to other people. And I want to tell you this, the battles you've been through in life or, or, or the things you are struggling with right now, you know what? God it will use those things to make you a blessing to other people going forward. The left-handed deliverer. Everybody thought he was nobody. Eglon wasn't threatened by him. He had, really. But God turned what was looked upon as a handicap into the salvation of Israel. Listen, I fully believe that you and I are God's answer to the needs of those around us. I don't anticipate being an Ehud and bring deliverance to the nation. I was going to change the whole world when I left Bible school and started pastoring. I probably won't do that now. <laughs> but if I have been an instrument to some change in some lives, I thank God for that. And if you can be an instrument of some change in some life, what a wonderful thing to be able to do. And if we could all commit ourselves to that cause, Lord, use me. Even with my background, even with my limitations, Lord, will you use me to bring change? We are living in a messed up land. The solution is not in Washington, D.C. The solution is right here this Sunday morning. Praying, loving, speaking the truth in love. I want to end by reading a prayer that some of you will perhaps be familiar with. It's a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And here's how that prayer goes. You might be familiar with this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Make me an instrument 
of your peace. Let's stand and pray together, please.